are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening just with the last few words from step 16 on avarice. And so we're, if you have the blue volume, we're on page 156, paragraph 10. One more coming in. So to conclude the step, uh, St. John tells us, a monk who loves money is a stranger to Sidia, and hourly the, remembers the word of the apostle, let an idle man not eat, and these hands of mine are, have ministered to me and to them that were with me. This is the 16th struggle. He who has won this victory has either obtained love or cut out care. And so Asidia, that he is a stranger to Asidia uh, because his focus is not on uh, being attentive to God uh, and his is on the work of his hands. And so he never falls into a kind of listlessness or boredom. He's always very focused uh, and his desire for material goods. And so it might seem as though he's working for God and doing things for God, but the real desire behind it is to is for personal gain in one form or another. And so uh, he's a complete stranger to Asidia, whereas most people struggle with that from time to time, that uh, in terms of having the energy and the focus to engage in this spiritual life and to engage in it fully uh, without distraction. And so uh, such people who are overcome with avarice, uh, you know, are very focused, uh, but sometimes that focus gets directed solely to the things of this world and the pursuit of them. And, you know, even within the life uh, of the church, certainly that's a possibility of pursuing uh, such things uh, under the umbrella of religion and religiosity, uh, yet seeking personal gain, even if it's self-esteem or uh, respect in the eyes of others or to move up within the ranks uh, of the church, perhaps. And uh, so one doesn't necessarily lose the appeal for the things of this world. In fact, it just can become even more subtle and more difficult to deal with. But in this struggle, if we've obtained freedom uh, from avarice, then one has obtained love that the desire is for God and has cut out cares so that there's a, a loss of anxiety that is so often tied to the pursuit of worldly goods and security for ourselves within the world. Lawrence writes, Father Abernethy, I'll see if there's a, okay, go ahead, keep typing. <laughs> so as Lawrence is typing up his question here, we're moving on to step 17, which is described as non-possessiveness uh, but one can call uh, detachment as well. Uh, Father Abernathy, what is your opinion of the Noonday Devil book? Uh, I've only uh, I've only seen it. I haven't had the opportunity to to read it. 
uh, as of late, uh, but it, uh, it does deal with the subject of acedia. And um, uh, one of the more difficult things to uh, make one's way through, uh, when we struggle with various passions in the spiritual life, uh, it, there are often things that we can engage in. If we've got any, we would you know, focus on fasting and things such as that. But with the CDA, it can be very difficult. And when there's a lack of desire there for the things of God and the spiritual life, that one often simply has to endure and press through it until you come out the other end. And that feeling begins to lift, that sort of listlessness that can overcome us or, or spiritual boredom. Okay, steps number 17 on detachment, if you just joined us, or on page uh, 156. Non-possessiveness is the resignation of cares, life without anxiety, and unencumbered war wayfare, alienation from sorrow, fidelity to the commandments. So as always, John begins with uh, a definition of the vice or, or the virtue. And here uh, with detachment, uh, resignation uh, of cares. So one becomes resigned at times to the things of day-to-day -day life and the struggles and sufferings that often go along with it and are able to embrace it uh, with this trust in the providence of God. And so uh, lose uh, this kind of care and anxiety about things. And so he goes on to say it's life without anxiety, and one becomes an unencumbered wayfarer. So there's a kind of freedom in making our way through life when uh, we freed ourselves from our attachment to worldly things, and where we aren't driven by security and can follow our conscience and follow the, the voice of God and the direction of the Spirit. Uh, where it, wherever it should lead us. And uh, uh, perhaps we don't talk about that often enough, that so often many of our decisions are based more upon uh, a kind of security, uh, safety in our life, where our gifts or talents seem to be uh, a comfort zone for us. Uh, even after we've made uh, certain vocational decisions. We can uh, like to stay in a kind of environment uh, where we are not stretched or where we are not asked to do things that where we have to abandon ourselves ourselves more to the grace of God and to trust in his direction, especially when it doesn't seem to uh, certainly appeal to us or where it becomes very difficult for us to see the hand of God in it, where it doesn't uh, seem to be in accord with reason. You know, where is the kingdom in this, we might tell ourselves, or where's the hand of God in this? Whereas a person who's freed from this attachment to worldly things and the security that they, they give us uh, is uh, capable of being, allowing oneself to be given to be directed wherever the spirit blows, as it were. And uh, this becomes very important. You know, I think so often, especially in the life of the church, we, um, and when we see, you know, numbers shrink, uh, we can, especially amongst the clergy, can get into this sense of uh, that there's nothing that can be done or that we're mere care caretakers of uh, of what has been passed on to us and that seems not to have much life in it. And uh, when we give ourselves over to that, uh, the tendency is then to uh, lose any kind of creativity or zeal or willingness to, to, to risk stepping out and doing the things that are difficult that we could bring life to a ministry, to a parish, what, whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, it's much easier, I think, to stay again where it's comfortable, even where uh, perhaps there is no signs of life or growth. Um, it can be very difficult when we are striking out for new territory 
And it's very much like the disciples or apostles being sent out with nothing, uh, where what they have to trust is in the action and the work of the spirit within them and not simply what they bring along for the work itself. Uh, he has entrusted his cares to God. I'm sorry. A non-possessive monk is the Lord of the world. I'm sorry, I missed a few things there. Alienation from sorrow. And so the, the loss of certain material goods. I think sometimes when we're growing up and, uh, you know, you know, we experience very early on, you know, something breaks for, for us and, uh, you know, whether it's a new toy and that sort of that feeling can continue on well into adulthood. Uh, the things that we uh, love and give us comfort. Um, often, uh, you know, when we, we lose them can know great sorrow, but when there's kind of detachment, when God becomes the center of our life, and we know that he is the fullness of that life, and whatever we might sacrifice in this, in this world is not lost to us in him, uh, then we, we lose this, this kind of sorrow that can weigh, weigh heavily upon the mind and the heart. And then finally, he says, fidelity to the commandments uh, that, again, unimpeded by uh, the things of this world and the allure of, of the things of this world, and where we are tempted to make them idols for ourselves, then what we find ourselves having is a greater freedom in our embrace of the commandments in our life. They don't seem to us to be an obstacle to joy, uh, but just the opposite. Let's see, Connor writes, uh, point one, prayer of the last optina elders. Oh, Lord, grant me the great to greet the coming day in peace. Help me in all things to rely upon your holy will. And every hour of the day, reveal your will to me. Bless my dealings with all who surround me. Teach me to treat all that comes to throughout the day with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. And all my needs, deeds, and words guide my thoughts and feelings and unforeseen events. Let me not forget that all are sent by you. Teach me to act firmly, wisely, without embittering and embarrassing others. Give me strength to bear the fatigue of the coming day that shall bring. Direct my will. Teach me to pray. And you yourself pray in me. Well, it almost seems as if the prayer is based upon uh, Climacus's definition of detachment, that uh, one is wholly uh, seeking to be guided by God and directed by him and to embrace his will and to be uh, free uh, from our uh, concern over what the day will bring us. And uh, I think the deeper our relationship becomes with God and the more that we cling to that love, I think there is this greater joy and peace that begins to abide within our hearts, that we're able to make our way through things with, I think, a lot less energy uh, because we let go of that anxiety that we're seeking to contain in the midst of it. When we face the day in a fearful fashion, uh, a lot of that uh, energy within the mind and the heart goes to containing that and dealing with it rather than focusing simply on what is at hand and trusting that God is present and his will is present in what is before us. John goes on to say, a non-possessive monk is the Lord of the world. He has entrusted his cares to God and by faith has obtained all men as his servants. He will not tell his need to man, and he receives what comes to him as from the hand of the Lord. So an interesting little paragraph, Lord of the world, that uh, when one is not desperate to hold on to the things of this world, uh, one in a sense is placed above them, that there is, a kind, again, a kind of freedom uh, where the, the things of this world uh, are, we see, are meant for us and for our use, uh, but we have no fear of losing them. And so they have no control over us. And I think with avarice, we, we see, saw very clearly 
that are uh, seeking to possess the things of this world begins to control us. Uh, material things, uh, once we have them, are never enough, and we always want more. Whereas if there is a kind of detachment, we are satisfied with what we have, and so there is a deep freedom that comes to us. Uh, he will not tell his need to man. I think one of our tendencies is in our day-to-day -day struggles is to communicate uh, usually all of them in one form or another to others, uh, seeking their counsel or sim simply seeking to vent or to complain. And uh, John is telling us here, you know, a person who is detached is not going to be uh, one who is always telling what is going on with them or what they're struggling with, but first are, are going to God. And in our day and age, everybody shares everything, every last thought on social media. So they're telling the world everything that's going on in their life, even the most intimate things. Whereas that should be the last place where one reveals the deeper matters of the heart. And, uh, you know, one should not use Facebook as con the confessional uh, or use it as a place where one seeks spiritual guidance. Uh, that uh, first and foremost, we, we go to God. And, uh, you know, we're often looking for inspiration other than in God. And I think when uh, we're deeply rooted in that relationship, that tendency begins to disappear. And he receives what comes to him as from the hand of the Lord. So again, a, a trust in the providence of God that what we are given for the day is sufficient, as well as the struggles of the particular day are sufficient for our attention. And that we don't worry about uh, the unknown uh, that might, and the unexpected that might come in the days of head, that the, the evils of the day are sufficient, as it were, uh, for us to address. Connor writes, I guess I'm the quote guy tonight, all our peace in this sad life lieth in humble suffering rather than not feeling adversities. He who best knoweth how to suffer shall possess the most peace. That man is conqueror of himself and the Lord of the world, the friend of Christ and the inheritor of heaven. Thomas Kempis, the imitation of Christ, another great spiritual work. Uh, yes, again, almost the very same language is used here. Uh, conqueror of himself and Lord of the world. And uh, we often will, again, turn our gaze outward, uh, calculating or strategizing about how we are to deal with the, the affairs of our day-to-day -day life or our relationships with other individuals, even, rather than focusing uh, what's going on in our own hearts in order that we might approach others with freedom and lack of calculation, simply in love and humility. And, uh, and so it's not always the person that seem, seems to have the most in the world or seems to have it all together who is the freest uh, from anxiety. You know, sometimes it's those who have the simplest life and know themselves well uh, have the greatest peace from, from day to day. Number three, the non-possessive ascetic is a son of detachment and thinks of what he has as if it were nothing. When he becomes a solitary, he regards everything as refuse. But if he worries about something, he has not yet become non-possessive. So you could see that, you know, why would one become a solitary if there is still this attachment to the things of this world or one clings to those things? Uh, because to enter into the solitary life is really to remove oneself from the comfort, the security of even the presence of others or in the care of oneself from day to day in terms of health, food, and things such as that that one has to trust completely 
uh, in the will of God, but also the grace that he provides. And, uh, and so if we worry about anything, then this reveals to us where our, our work has to be done, that there is something that we are attached to. And again, I don't think we have to be overly specific in thinking about this in, in regards to worldly goods. It can be simply comforts of our life, uh, certain sense of, again of security that we might have uh, in our way of life where we do not have to rely upon God or, or we think that we don't have to. That things are set before us and we, we need to have no anxiety, but often that will betray itself in the end when we when we face something that is out of our control. Uh, over the course of one century, again from Connor, Elder Leonid's arrival in 1929 until the monastery forced closure by the communist uh, Optina, with its skeet of St. John the Forerunner, was at the center of the tremendous spiritual arrival in Russia. That's right. Yeah, so the Optina Fathers are really a wonderful resource. Uh, and uh, there's a book called, what's uh, the title of it? Hypocrisy, something like Overcoming Hypocrisy, the sayings of the Optina. Optina Fathers, a really wonderful resource for just day-to-day -day meditation, something to reflect upon throughout the course of the day. If somebody finds that title, perhaps you can put it in the uh, in the chat. Okay. Let's see. Number four. A non-possessive man is pure during prayer but an inquisitive man prays to material images. So a non-possessive man uh, lets go of holding on to ideas, images, even the sense of what prayer is. That I've often heard it said of uh, some of the fathers that uh, they would say that sometimes one does not know if one is praying or not. And often this is really a sign where true, true prayer is emerging because we are being drawn into something that is greater than ourselves uh, in and through our faith. We're drawn into the very life of God himself. And so even the structure that perhaps has served us well and our sense of what prayer is uh, can begin to dissipate. And that can be sort of an unsettling kind of experience for us because we let go of the crutches or the structure of what we think prayer should be. And as we are drawn into greater silence and the deep listening that we've often talked to, where God, we are seeking to allow God to speak his word uh, to the very depths of our being, uh, then we find ourselves walking in that darkness of faith that John of the Cross talks about. And so there is a, a, a pure kind of prayer that emerges for one who lets go of his own perception or reason or understanding of how things should be. And uh, even in our relationship with God and even the, what would be the most intimate communication between ourselves and God can be something that we want to give shape to, or that we, we do give shape to in the sense of limits or conditions. Whereas if we are truly listening to the spirit and allowing God to guide us, then we are often perhaps going to be uh, guided into a deeper immersion than we might expect that our prayer might take on uh, greater stillness and silence, but also we might linger longer than we imagine or feel, and, uh, feel a need or hunger to remain in that prayer longer each day or to make space for it than simply what we had in our mind in terms of a prayer role. A prayer role is essential and can be helpful I think as we enter into the spiritual life to guide us, but there is a point where we have to sort of let go again of our own sense of wisdom 
or our own sense of how things should be to allow ourselves to be guided uh, as God desires. So, but an inquisitive man prays to material things that in, in a way we can be praying uh, to ourselves, for ourselves and the things that we think that we need uh, in order to make us happy or, or to give us uh, a sense of being spiritual uh, rather than letting go of all of that and simply seeking and desiring God in love. And uh, we can have our minds set even so much on overcoming certain passions or obtaining certain virtues for ourselves that these things loom so large for us that they, they can make us inattentive to, to God himself. And it might be because we have a certain anxiety about a passion that we struggle with or, or we're weak in a particular virtue where we uh, find ourselves having to cling to God more throughout the course of the day. And perhaps that's what he desires or that's what will sanctify us. Uh, but at times we have to, to let go of that. Uh, Non-possessiveness means landless. It's, uh, right, so unfamiliar territory. You know, no place to lay one's head or to feel comfortable. I don't think we're necessarily meant to feel comfortable in our relationship with God. It's a, this is what the scriptures say. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, uh, that we have this ten tendency to domesticate God. And there are times where God is going to reveal certain things to us that will turn our world upside down or wants us to see some truth that perhaps is difficult to see about ourselves. Number five, those who live in obedience are strangers to love of money. For where even the body has been given up, what is left to be one's own, only in one way can they be harmed, namely by being ready and quick to go from place to place. I've seen material possessions make monks patient to remain in one place, but I praise those who are pilgrims for the Lord. So we can cling, he's saying here, even if we've reached a certain level of detachment from material goods, we can cling to something that's far more valuable in our own eyes. And that's our own private judgment and our own will. And so to live in obedience uh, will make a person a stranger, not only to, to money, but I think uh, stranger to uh, most things within this world. Uh, I think when we are able to let go of our willfulness is when we can be most responsive to God, but also to, to the needs of others. We become obedient uh, to the, the truth of uh, a given set of circumstances, the need of others, where they need to be loved or be where we need to be attentive to them, to let go of our schedule, our plans, our purposes for that which God uh, puts before us. Only, I'm uh, sorry, uh, I've seen material possessions make monks patient to remain in one place. Uh, so there, there can be uh, certain possessions that a monastery has. And so it's a curious thing that John leaves no rock unturned here, that there is a value to living in community, that it does provide one with that opportunity for obedience, to let that one go, one's, let go of one's willfulness, as, as I said. But there can be, again, a sort of comfort in the... Uh, knowing that there's going to be a meal for the day or that there's going to be safety and numbers, uh, and especially in certain places in the desert uh, where Christians are in the minority, 
to have a high wall surrounding you and to have a group of other monks with you can make one feel rather secure. Whereas the anchorites who are going out into the desert, one isn't sure what, what food you're going to find that given day, what wild animals you might come across or uh, robbers or thieves that might leave you for dead. And uh, so, uh, you know, the deepest attachment is often found in those pilgrims that, uh, again, allow themselves to be guided by God, uh, even into the depths of the wilderness. He who has tasted the things on high easily despises what is below, but he who has not tasted the things above finds joy and possessions. Uh, this is what I, I think often hobbles us in so many different aspects of the spiritual life, whether it's with the pursuit of virtue or the practice of certain forms of, of asceticism uh, or of prayer itself, that we often do not stay with it long enough to be able to taste the sweet fruit of it. Uh, and so th this is why we've heard the monks and why we've often talked about things like to love fasting or to love prayer or to love another form of, of asceticism because one begins to taste something of the freedom that that brings or the greater desire uh, for, for heaven itself. And uh, so the remembrance of death uh, that Climacus puts forward uh, before us uh, one might not embrace that uh, on a daily basis, uh, but then in the process, never come to know the kind of freedom that comes in that, but also a kind of vigilance of understanding that our life in this world is ever so brief. As we talked about, you know, it passes in a blink of an eye. And, uh, and so understanding that can give one a kind of freedom from this anxious pursuit of security and happiness in this world, knowing that it all co comes to dust and very quickly. A man who is senselessly non-possessive suffers a double harm. He abstains from present goods and is deprived of future ones. So if we do not believe in the resurrection, if we do not place our hope in God and the life that he holds out to us, then simply to detach ourselves from worldly goods, to be a kind of stoic, uh, to em empty ourselves, uh, simply for maybe a kind of emotional freedom, then we are the most pitiable of creatures. Uh, John is telling us, echoing, in a sense, uh, the, the language of St. Paul, that if we lose sight of Christ and the promise of life and deification, then to let go of the things of this world makes no sense whatsoever. And so John tells us this person suffers, suffers a double harm. They deprive themselves not only of the things of this world, but the joys that come from faith in Christ and his promise of everlasting life. And this is important because I think so often people confuse asceticism or even Christianity and Catholicism in particular as being a kind of stoicism or you know, of just a kind of hatred of self or the things of this world or of any kind of happiness. And it's not that. It's really ordering all things uh, in accord with our, where our desire should be directed, which is toward God. So having our desire for him be the greatest thing that guides and directs all of our actions. Because again, if we, we lose that true desire, then uh, you know we're either going to fall into a kind of uh, worldliness or attachment to the things of this world, uh, or, you know, we're going to fall into a kind of despondency, a kind of nihilism, that nothing matters or nothing has meaning or reason for us. Anthony writes, to forget the beatific vision is to merely fight the devil most conscious, 
consciously of your own efforts, conscious of your own efforts. Been there, done that, doing that, not healthy. Right. I think when we, we lose sight of why it is that we are engaged in the battle, eventually we're going to experience our own poverty. And uh, outside of God, I think we, we fall into a kind of despondency when we lose sight of his compassion, his love, and his mercy. And again, turn the uh, spiritual life into a form of endurance or a spiritual battle, again, but absent that of Christ and our sense of the communion of saints and uh, also being supported and strengthened by uh, our guardian angel and the angels as a whole. Let's see. Let us, let us monks, he says in number eight, then be as trustful as the birds are. For they have no cares, neither do they gather into barns. So again, echoing for us very clearly uh, the, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, remember, contemplate the, the birds of the air uh, or even the, the lilies of the field. You know, none of these things fret over their existence. And yet they have not been created as we are as human beings or share in the glory that has been given to us. And so why do we fret and uh, have anxiety when we, we know that we have such a savior, when the animals of this world or the things of this world uh, carry on as if bothered by nothing? So we should imitate or contemplate sort of the stillness of, with which they go about attending to their daily needs. Uh, someone graciously gave me a bird feeder uh, for my birthday. And uh, you sort of see this uh, in a very concrete way uh, as the, the birds come throughout the course of the day uh, to, the, to the feeder and uh, to go about the work of gathering for themselves and, uh, and uh, for their own needs. And, Nothing it goes beyond that focus. Uh, and certainly there isn't a sense of anxiety. There's a sense of freedom and beauty that one sees with, within them. Great is he who piously renounces possessions, but holy is he who renounces his will. The one will receive a hundredfold, either in money or in graces, but the other will inherit eternal life. So the Lord, we hear him in the gospel say, you know, that when sacrifices are made, when one gives oneself over to God, and one might have to leave home and family and the comforts, uh, you know, when Peter asks, uh, sort of blurts out uh, after our Lord's teaching about leaving the things of this world, and Peter says, well, we've left everything, home and family. What is it that we are to get out of this, basically? And this is when the Lord says, well, you, you will gain for yourself you know, homes, family, friends. And then he adds to that and persecution. And so there are certain things that the Lord does give us to sustain us within this life, even as we make those sacrifices and we let go of our attachment to the things of this world. So we let go of this possessiveness. It's, it's not as though the Lord strips us of all, all the joys of the things of this world, that often he will use these things, friends, family, homes, whatever he, he and his will and providence bestows upon us in order to guide and direct us or to strengthen us for that journey. Uh, and uh, But John does go on to say here, again, uh, speaking uh, like the gospel, you know, the one who really lets go of his will, who will not cling to anything, uh, is the one who possesses the one who's come to desire God uh, above anything. And so fears not the loss even of his own life. Waves never leave the sea, nor do anger and grief leave the avaricious. 
So anger and grief, you know, the, I think there is always what circles around us, uh, life, uh, a pack of wolves circling around its prey, you know, with avarice, I think what we find circling around us is grief, uh, that the loss of certain things can throw us into despair and despondency or anger, he tells us here, that we will fight to protect and even kill to protect what we feel is ours. And it doesn't have to be something extraordinary. I mean, there have been fights and murders over the smallest of things and even insults, you know, uh, to one's own integrity. And I think I, I mentioned that little story about St. Ignatius of Loyola, you know, entering into uh, 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 a discussion with a non-Christian about Mary and the non-Christian insults Our Lady and Ignatius decides he's going to kill him for doing so. And uh, so there's this, an assault upon his faith, what he holds dear, uh, and yet not having a clear sense of, or free, freedom that comes through love. You know, he's going to destroy this individual as if somehow that could regain uh, honor for, for Mary. He was so driven by this kind of Spanish uh, machismo, you know, uh, kind of, uh, clinging to one's identity and strength. I think I mentioned to you too, you know, about his, uh, you know, the shapeliness of men's legs back in his time were a thing. And so the strength of one's calves and the muscles of one's calves, that's why they wore the long stockings. And so there was a kind, a kind of show of masculinity and strength. And uh, when he ex uh, uh, was shot with a cannonball during the war, his leg, one leg was wounded really badly and it didn't heal correctly. And it left an unsightly bulge on the shin bone. And so he had them operate a second time to shave off the sort of calcium buildup where the bone had healed in order that his legs might not have this unsightly <laughs> bump. So talk about attachment to worldly things that, you know, Ignatius, even who became this great saint, uh, had to struggle mightily with, you know, his own ego, his own will, his distorted sense of uh, honor uh, in order that uh, he might live holy for God. Number 11. He who despises what is material is rid of quarrels and, co and controversies, but the covetous man will fight till death for a needle. And so this is what I was saying, that it, even the smallest things can take on this import, this level of import for us that, uh, that is, will drive us to, to quarrel with others or to take them to court or destroy a relationship altogether if somebody takes something that belongs to us. And, you know, we have to be willing to allow love to trump uh, all of our attachment to the things of this world. And uh, I, I heard somebody ask a priest one time about giving people on the street money if they ask. Uh, and, you know, I think what often comes to mind is that the money, even sometimes you can sell small alcohol on a person's breath, that the money is going to be used for to go buy a cheap bottle of liquor or something along those lines. Uh, but the priest said to the individual who asked about it, he said, better to err on the side of charity uh, than, uh, than to restrain ourselves in regards to uh, giving to someone in need. And, you know, even a person who has a drinking problem, you know, perhaps living on the street is the only bit of comfort they, they might have that night is a little bit of, you know, a drink or something like that. And not that, that we would want that to be the limit of our charity, but we can cling to a little bit of change uh, all out of principle rather than allowing ourselves to err on the side of charity. 
And I think across the board, uh, that little bit of advice holds true, that it is better to err on the side of charity. And we can cling to our, again, to our own opinions and judgments with a fierceness uh, and as a possession that is ours, that not as something that belongs to God. It, again, even the truth itself about church teaching you know, we, we can treat it as if it is our possession. And so that we go to war over with, with others. And often uh, charity is lost completely in that regard, uh, in the way that we, we talk to and, and treat others. And I think I've mentioned here a little practice that Philip Neri uh, had his, his men engage in, the proposal of doubts where uh, a theological principle or spiritual principle was put forward for discussion. And it would go in seniority around the room, typically take place at dinner, and the person would offer their explanation of some theological doubt, you know, of how they would answer this question. And the response that the person who follows would give would be, I agree with everything that has been said, and might only add. And if one is in profound disagreement, they might just simply pass and not say anything. That it was meant to be an exercise of the mind for individuals, but not something that was meant to jeopardize what was far greater, which was charity within the community. And so even where there isn't perfect agreement, one would still say, uh, and I might only add to what was said, rather than getting into disagreement or trying to humiliate the, the other by correcting them in front of the rest of the community. Uh, Louise writes, oh, there's a couple here. Louise writes, I find that it is mostly uh, human gesture and smile in return that is the gift beyond the money given. The person feels treated as a human being at this moment. That's absolutely right. You know, I think this is where we often fail. And uh, one of the modern elders said, you know, that tenderness is gen and gentleness is one of the things that the evil one fears the most or is one of the greater virtues. And, uh, and we often don't, again, think in that fashion that this attentiveness to the other is a far greater value than the things that we can give them. Uh, and often we can ignore the other altogether, even while we're giving them what we think is important. And, uh, and we can do this in more and more subtle ways under the guise of even things like busyness. And I was talking to somebody on the phone today about that story from Mother Teresa saying that often when people go out for lunch, they will sit under a tree and they'll be, you'll be all teeth, that is all smiling, she said, and have this long conversation that would often run over the, the lunch break. And he, she says in the West, that you'd probably call that laziness. And people would be reported for coming back from lunch late. But for, you know, in their culture, you know, the, what was seen as of greater value is this kind of personal interaction, again, with the, with the other. And I, I knew a young woman who had come here to this country to study and went on for her PhD. She was from Argentina. And one of the things that she missed the most was meeting with colleagues, uh, simply like at a coffee shop, to, to catch up, have a little conversation, and to, simply to see each other. And she worked at Carnegie Mellon, which was really high in demand, you know, both in teaching and public, public uh, publication research. And often it was hard to get individuals to do that, to take a break, break in their day, even to gather with somebody uh, for a cup of coffee. And uh, I think that's true. And when this begins to happen, uh, we begin not to see the other. You know, we see them more as objects rather than a person and to be loved and to be engaged. 
And, you know, I think our cell phones have helped that too. You know, we're always looking down at them rather than at others. Rarely do you find somebody that says hello or good morning. And it almost seems like it takes people by surprise when you do that. Uh, or what do you want? You know, is sort of almost the look or the expression when you offer just some greeting as if you're going to be asking something from them rather than offering them the greeting of the day. Uh, so this, again, we don't want to narrow our focus so much that we, we uh, make it only about material goods. It reaches far deeper than that. Unwavering faith cuts off cares and remembrance of death denies the body as well. So the deeper our faith becomes, the more that we see of the love of God, the preciousness of the gift that has been given to us in our baptism, in the Holy Eucharist, in the gift of the Spirit, and again, the remembrance of death, the, the brevity of our life in this world in comparison to our share in eternal life and love, the freer then one becomes. It cuts off all cares. And again, I think this is hard for us to imagine, an anxiety-free life. And we take it for granted that this is just how things are. And uh, we do everything that we can to escape it. And accept uh, the one thing that is necessary. You know, we're, we're willing to go great lengths to free ourselves from that feeling of anxiety. Uh, you know, whether it's exercise or drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be, uh, ra rather than turn to God and prayer and to, to live in him. And uh, again, this is one of the, those things about uh, tasting the things on, of, of high or from on high, that to be able to taste something of the peace of the kingdom creates a greater hunger for it and one that faith deepens and blooms in its fullness, then all care disappears. And we have a multitude of examples of this in the saints. You know, I think the one that comes to mind is when we're talking about, especially uh, non-possessiveness would be Francis of Assisi. You know, one who embraces this poverty uh, and uh, finds great freedom in it. You know, that there's not a romanticized vision of it, although that sometimes happens, but I think he truly experienced this kind of freedom uh, from the anxieties and concerns that he grew up with and that he saw, I think, within his own father as well. And again, was taught that this was the norm of life. And, you know, even the cheesiest movies uh, capture this uh, fundamental truth, you know, will present him as saying, I just want to be happy. And we often don't think about that. You know, I just want to experience joy you know the the beatitude that jesus speaks of the happiness the joy of the kingdom that comes with living the, the blessed life and uh you know when we do not taste that i think we sort of condemn ourselves to a deep anxiety and the uh, the more that we enter into it the harder it is to uh to get ourselves out of it in Job, there was no trace of avarice. Therefore, when he lost everything, he remained undisturbed. So not that Job didn't know the pain of it, but his trust in God, the one who had given everything, uh, remained even when that same God seemed to take everything away from him or allowed it to be taken away from him. And so could remain undist undisturbed in the sense of not becoming agitated in heart. You know, one can know great sorrow at the losses of life, and certainly Job experienced more than the majority. And, uh, and really, the, the, the question that Job puts to God within, within uh, the, 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 the book of Job is never answered. The answer is, is Christ. You know, why? 
you know, why did the, does this happen? And it's in Christ that we receive the answer, you know, because of our sin, because of our iniquity, uh, uh, but also that, you know, God takes all of this upon himself in order that that might not be an enduring reality for us. That we might not only know joy and fullness, but eternal life. The love of money is and is called the root of all evils because it produces hatred, thefts, envy, separation, enmities, storms, remembrance of wrong, hard-heartedness, murders. So, you know, our clinging to things really can bring about almost any uh, vice and some of the, of the worst of them. Again, the, the more that we cling to these things, he says it's the, the root of evil. And so it plants, you know, it plants that seed, a seed has been planted by our clinging to the things of this world that puts down deep roots. And eventually those roots grow and then it takes over our life and grows in directions that perhaps we would not imagine over the course of time. Uh, when it fully takes over our life, uh, then what it produces is the, these fruits, the fruits of the evil one, not the, 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 the fruits of the kingdom. Number 15. Some have burned much wood with a small fire, and with the help of one virtue, some have escaped all the passions just, just mentioned. This virtue is called detachment, and it is born of experience and a taste of God, and a concern for the account to be given at death. Uh, this, this saying, this uh, paragraph struck me the most throughout this course, this, the course of this week, as I read it over and over again, uh, that uh, not only is it beautifully written, uh, but uh, it speaks to everything that he's, he's touched upon here and brings it uh, into, uh, uh, you know, brings a kind of clarity uh, to our vision and our understanding of it. Uh, with a small fire, much wood could be burned. So with this one shoe, uh, of our ability to let go of everything and cling to God, we, we can, can, all of these vices can be consumed by it. And, uh, and so detachment born of experience. So again, it can't be something that is abstracted from reality. We can talk a lot about detachment and we can talk a lot about poverty and poverty of spirit and still have it be an abstract reality for it that has not been inter internalized and interiorized in such a sense that we give ourselves over to it. And so where we have this experiential knowledge of it that then has borne the fruit of the kingdom that we've tasted for our, ourselves, all of these things, uh, then he tells us, uh, along with the concern of standing before God, uh, where nothing is hidden in the full light of truth, all of these things burn up those vices at one time. So it tells you the weight of this virtue uh, for us and how much we should, should pursue it. And I think, again, within our, our culture, it can be one of the more difficult things to pursue uh, because I think we are told again and again that our value, our identity, our dignity is found precisely in the things that we achieve, accomplish and have rather than what is within our hearts. The freedom is found through these other things. Number 16, the attentive reader will remember the history of the mother of all evil. When she enumerated her wicked and cursed children, she said that her second offspring was the stone of insensibility, 
but the many-headed snake of idolatry prevented me from giving it its own special place. I do not know why, but the discerning fathers give it the third place in the chain of the eight deadly sins. Having said sufficient about avarice, we now intend to speak about insensibility as the third infirmity, though the second born. And after this, we shall treat briefly of sleep and watchfulness, and also of puerile and cowardly fear, for these are the failings of beginners. And so for John, he, he wasn't clear, uh, even though the other fathers put it in this third place, uh, why, why avarice was put in the third place after lust and gluttony. Uh, but I think it has to do, again, because it's tied to our, our hunger for the things of this world and to be satisfied by the things of this world is tied to those appetites. And whether it's to satisfy our sexual appetites or our appetite for food or the things of the, of the world. And in many ways, you know, where the first two fail to take hold of our hearts, the third is almost guaranteed to because it is never satisfied. Uh, like a person can eat to the point of sickness. And, but, you know, no matter how much we have in terms of material goods or money, we can always want more. And so I think also freeing our, ourselves from this then promises us a great deal too, that uh, in terms of blessings, that we're able to overcome all of these vices by overcoming this third. And so John says, okay, I'll, I'll, hold, I'll embrace the, the tradition, the wisdom of the fathers, even though at first I didn't understand why they put it before the others. Uh, and he has in mind this insensibility, like uh, our lack of desire for the things of God. But you can see, and I think we will see, that our lack of desire for the things of God is, and our insensibility, that is our uh, lack of desire for, for them, is why it would be tied to avarice. You know, when we're satisfying ourselves constantly with the things of this world, and we're telling ourselves that, you know, our life is going to go on perpetually, or, you know, we hide death from our, ourselves, then, uh, you know, we, we can be drawn into the greatest insensibility, that God is put out of the picture altogether, and we fall into this kind of idolatry, and some of the fathers say adultery, infidelity, to the love of God and the gift that he makes of himself to us uh, by uniting ourselves to the things uh, of this world as our true love. And uh, he gives us a little glimpse of what uh, lies in the future, that there are other appetites, sleep, and sometimes our laziness in that regard, in terms of ordering that appetite, prevents us from seeking that which is greater. Uh, watchfulness, you know, in being attentive to the battle that we're engaged in, but more importantly, prayer. And also then uh, puerile and cowardly fear. You know, when we cling, when we are attached to our own security, uh, that attachment can be so great, he says, that one can begin to fear their own shadow uh, and, you know, will jump at the slightest thing, whereas a, a person who lives for God would fear nothing. In fact, in, a, in an odd kind of way, John, as we'll see, and I'm not going to run us over here, but he tells us that, you know, we should not fear to walk anywhere or to go anywhere. Uh, and I think in our, again, in our day and age where the media is filled with, you know, people being beat up and attacked, you know, I think it's uh, fostered a kind of fear and anxiety within our heart about what, what could be lost. And again, it, it puts us into this defensive position in relationship to the world and to others. And think about how devastating that could be to evangelization, you know, when the other 
and the world itself becomes such a fearful place and the other becomes so fearful to us, a potential uh, enemy, someone who could strike us down, then we are not going to uh, want to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And this vulnerability is an absolute necessity to love, to love in a godly way. And, you know, Christ shows us this in the most concrete fashion in the cross, you know, stretched out, pinned to the cross, telling us, yes, this is the nature of the love of the kingdom. And there's a temptation that I think that comes along in our day when we see the violence of the world and the ugliness of the world around us. And we do develop these attachments to our own security. We want uh, assurances and insurance against uh, these particular evils. And so we, we draw back and seek to protect ourselves as much as we, we can on an emotional level, as well as as a, as a physical level. And that could be used as a mighty temptation by the evil one uh, to keep us from engaging others in love. It can make us calculating and cold towards others rather, rather than open and loving. Any comments about this step? He says, this is the 17th. He who has mounted it is journeying to heaven stripped of material goods. So like athletes of old uh, who strip down naked, we, we run unencumbered and, uh, and, and free. And not something, again, many of us would like to see ourselves doing, but uh, nonetheless, there it is. <laughs> so any final thoughts or comments about this step? Okay. But we'll close there for this evening and we'll pick up next Monday with Deborah Gutinos and then next Wednesday, Wednesday with another meeting of the ladder. Okay. And so let's close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.